Hey, it's great to see all of you this evening. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to be looking for most of the evening. Matthew chapter 6. And the idea as we have been in this series is we're continuing in spiritual warfare and prayer. So spiritual warfare and prayer, that's where we've been looking. For some of you, this has been old hat, but for a lot of you, this idea, especially of spiritual warfare, has been new. And you have either not heard of it before or it's something you thought was kind of done and it's a very real, real thing. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit of my journey as we press on through the night. So tonight is a, a strange tie-in though. It's the idea of what happens if I have bitterness in my heart towards someone? Bitterness always starts with a hurt, a wound. It begins with anger and then goes down the road of uh, I'm really frustrated, I'm really angry, and I just don't let that go. And to use a little bit of a gross word, it festers. And then it becomes infected and as it becomes infected, it begins to grow and take root in our life. And there's an interesting correlation between bitterness and spiritual warfare in the scriptures. There's this idea that when I harbor anger, hurt, frustration, and bitterness towards someone, that I actually begin to open my life up to satanic, demonic attacks and influences. It's and I think we'll see that as we go through this evening, uh, as we look at Matthew chapter six, we'll look at Ephesians chapter four, and I'll throw at one point, I'll put a screen up that'll have like a bunch of passages that will, that'll illustrate this point even more. But as we, as we get going tonight, I actually want to just, um, I just want to pause before we start. I've never done this before. I should have introduced myself. I'm Thomas Nelson. I'm one of the ministers, one of the pastors on staff here at Christ Covenant. Um, there's Jennifer McClish back there. She's our women's minister. Raise your hand, Jennifer. There we go. Yes, there's Jennifer. Um, and, uh, and Jamie obviously works at the church. Who was that? Well, you may not know that Jamie who was up here with me, who uh, you're going to have all the ski trip questions. She works there. But I also want you to know that this wouldn't happen with about 40 volunteers every week. And so if you're one of those folks who volunteers, would you just give them a round of applause for doing all that they do to set up and the food and the welcome and tear down afterwards? We really appreciate it. Uh, here, here's where I'm going to go for about five minutes. This is pre-rehearsed. This is for you, fellas. It's actually for you, ladies, but here you go, fellas. What's the purpose of this book? In a couple of weeks, we're going to do a, a, a little mini-series on the Bible and Bible study and how to, everything from how to pick a version to how to do Bible study to what is the Bible. But I'm just going to go ahead and give you a spoiler alert. This is not a collection of things for me to learn. This is the written down revelation of God. When I open this up, it's sacred. 
It's sacred and sacred things come to life in me. The Word of God, the Bible says, is living and active. That's why you can start reading this book when you're five, finish reading it on this side of heaven at 95, and it still feel fresh and new and never exhausted. This book is not a book of systematic theology terms. This book is not a book of learning more about what inspired Calvin or Luther or any of the the Puritans. This book is about God. This book is not a self-help book. If you want a self-help message, there's any number of churches in this state on the internet all over the place that'll give you a real good self-help on how to have the best life now and how you can, you can get your piece of the pie and all the other things. But they'll just take the words and twist it because they'll twist it in the worst way possible and they'll make it about you. And it's not about you. It's about him. And he's the one who has revealed himself to us. This is not basic instructions before leaving earth. This is a revelation of the holy God. And so as I come to this book, I don't come to this book as a source of just learning and knowledge. And in fact, I'll just go ahead and ask you, when was the last time some of you who are so big into learning theological terms and principles and ideas, and and our church wants that, we want you to grow in your knowledge, but when was the last time that you learned some systematic theology term and your life was changed forever? Or when was the last time you opened this book and you read a verse and God spoke to you and then your life began to change? It's not the learning that changes. And I mean, I've got 92 hours of a seminary degree and it bears no weight on my personal holiness. The scribes and the Pharisees had all the knowledge that could be had. And just as one who is called to pastor this flock and to shepherd this flock, I fear that some of you have created a knowledge-based religion and you begin to evaluate other people on how many terms they know. And if they don't know enough terms, well, clearly they're not godly enough. And If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's good. I hope you don't. But my concern is that you're going to pass by some really beneficial friendship. And whether it's a guy and a girl, and maybe it turns into more than a friendship, or whether it's two dudes or a couple of ladies, whatever it is, just like just being friends, I fear that some of you, because of your hunger for knowledge and this air of superiority that's possible, are going to pass by folks because you've got the head and the heart flipped. And there are some incredible folks. One of them is named Peter. He was a disciple who God used to change the world, who was an uneducated fisherman. He wrote about people like Paul And he said, yeah, that guy writes stuff that's hard to understand. He may have not had all the words and all the terms, but his head and his heart were flipped just right, and his heart knew the Lord. And as a result, he fed his head with knowledge of the Lord to know the Lord more. 
but not to look down on people because they didn't know as many terms or words or phrases or historic people. They didn't know where all the dead people were from and what they had done. Need I remind you, there's a, a, a famous chapter, obviously, that many of you have heard and some of you have memorized. Some of you have been to weddings and you've heard this. But Paul starts off 1 Corinthians 13 and he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. And he says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't arrogant or rude, it doesn't insist on its own way, it's not ir irritable or resentful, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. Love never ends. He says, as far as prophecies, they'll pass away. As far as tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it too will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And then Paul says something very interesting because I think he can relate to this idea of if I acquire more knowledge, then I'm clearly going to be a better Christian and a better person. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man... I gave up childish ways. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I'll know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love remain these three, but love is the greatest. So my encouragement to you guys in particular is to drop some of the theological learned ego and be a man and look at the heart of people and not just what they know. You might be amazed at what's hiding in that person. I want to pray for us and we're going to start the real Bible study. Ready? Lord, thank you so much for this time together tonight. I thank you for your word. I just ask that you'd speak to us, Lord. I ask that you, as Will prayed earlier, would move through your word, through your Holy Spirit, through my words. Lord, we lift all this up to you in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. So let's look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. It's one of the, the most famous prayers ever recorded. I've even said it during this series, but it's Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15. And so at Christ's covenant, one of our traditions is... I will read it and I will say the word of the Lord and you will say, thanks be to God and it'll be great. And if you come from a Catholic background, you're like, I'm back again. Here we go. All right. So here we go. Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us of our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
He goes on and he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And just real quick while we're at it, I'm going to go ahead and read the second set of verses that are key tonight. Even if we don't come back to them a ton, I may just reference them. But Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 26 and 27. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, be angry and do not let sin, I'm sorry, and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. The word of the Lord. Good job. I'm proud of you. You'll be ready for Sunday. The idea in this series has been, hey, the devil's real, spiritual warfare is real, demonic influence is real, and yet the first week we went over the theology of that, can you be demon-possessed, can you not, what does that look like, does it still exist? You can go back on the podcast and listen to all of it, and as we fleshed all of that out, we get to a place where we realize, man, I, the devil is real and he's coming after me. He's like a roaring lion looking for those whom he may devour. In the book of Jude, we get the idea that I can't fight the devil. I'm not strong enough to fight the devil. And so how do I, what do I do? Well, I say what the angel said to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. I have to, I have my strength from Ephesians 6 is to be strong in the Lord. And how am I strong in the Lord? Well, I put on the spiritual armor that I might take my stand against the enemy. And so that's the last couple of weeks. And so we look at all that and that's great, but this series is called Spiritual Warfare and Prayer. And I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to look at what does prayer have to do with spiritual warfare? Well, in the Bible, it's full of it. It was even hidden in this Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's go back and look at the middle couple of verses in Matthew chapter 6. Look at verse 12 and 13. In verse 12, he says, this is Jesus talking. He says, forgive us our debts. So we should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts or our sins or our trespasses as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, you may have prayed that prayer a hundred times, maybe one time, maybe a thousand times, but I can almost guarantee you never really stopped on that line. And we have to be careful. Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, be careful what comes out of your mouth when you go before God lest you be held accountable for it. And we've prayed this prayer a lot. God, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. Now get out of my freaking way, driver, right? Like we pray that prayer while we're on the road. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we pray that prayer and we just move on. Think about what you just prayed. If you've ever prayed, let's see, show of hands, even if you didn't mean it, have you been a part of praying this prayer before? Anybody? Yeah, most everybody in the room has probably prayed this prayer. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That is a fascinating line to pray. You just prayed, God, remove as much sin from me as I've allowed others to be forgiven of. And then if you didn't think he meant it, if you were like, that's just some niceties, look at verse 14, verses 14 and 15. For if you, he's done with the Lord's Prayer now, and then he goes into, by the way, in case you missed it, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Jesus just said it. If you forgive others their sins, then God's going to forgive you of your sins. But if you don't forgive others their sins, neither will your Father forgive your sins. Now, how is this even possible? How can you reconcile this? Look, here's the deal. This is the cross, okay? Okay. 
This is my rudimentary cross. Here's the cross, all right? Now, here's little Thomas. Actually, I was probably 17. When I said I got saved, I was eight, but I was probably 17. Here I am, and here's the cross over here, okay? When I am eight years old and I think I understand the gospel when I'm 17 years old and I really did give my life to Christ like I felt convicted and I knew Jesus died for my sins and I knew I was sinful and separated from him I asked him to forgive me of my sins and so now me and the cross were like right here I'm not thinking about the rest of my life and my sins I'm thinking about right here and so man I'm like lined up with the cross and boom I have been forgiven but the way in God's economy he works he was also looking down here however far this is maybe it's like 55, maybe it's 85, maybe I make it and Jesus comes back, eh? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And so like whatever it is, he was thinking here, I was thinking like in this moment. At 17, all you think about is that moment and yourself. Like that's what I was thinking about. So I get saved right here, but in God's economy, I am saved, completely saved all the way to the end. What does that mean? He's removed my sins from me. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the East is from the West. We did a whole series on that idea just a couple of months ago. And so like I'm saved, I'm saved as I can be. In John 10, no one can snatch me out of his hand. I am his sheep and I know his voice and I follow him. Like I am, I'm, good. But it seems like there's a clause here. And the clause seems like it says, wait a minute, is this like I continually have to forgive other people all their sins so that I can stay like with the cross as I track through my life? Or does the cross cover my whole life? Yes. The cross covers your whole life. If you come to Christ tonight, your whole life is covered. I don't have the theology that if you were to commit suicide or if you were to do this or do that or didn't have your last rites read or any of those things that you're gonna be separated from God for some amount of time. Like, that's it. Like, he, we're his, we're family. Like, we're his at that point. And we're his until we're with him. But there is the idea that my walk with the Lord, my hearing from the Lord, my being used by the Lord. And folks, that's my number one like desire in life slash fear is that I would be discounted from being used by the Lord. Like I fear that more than anything else. I wanna know the Lord and love the Lord and follow the Lord and be used by the Lord. I don't ever wanna, I don't ever wanna wash up on the shores of heaven and God was like, good run for like a second. I want to finish the course. I want to run the race. But in that moment, I can't run the race. And also, I didn't even mean for this to rhyme, but it's going to rhyme. I can't run the race and be a disgrace to him. Like, my life is a constant gospel witness. And so if I have bitterness and anger and frustration towards someone, my witness is now hindered. And the Lord is going to leave me stuck until that is resolved. It's not going to be any good for me to go to him and say, hey, would you forgive me of the sins that I've been doing uh, and just help me to be a better person and blah, 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 when I am hating someone else. 
And so until I let other people go, I am stuck. But not only am I stuck, that's not the only consequence. The other consequence is at that point, I open my life up to spiritual attack. Look at the next line after verse 12 in Matthew 6. Look at verse 13. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The very next line, forgive me of my trespasses as I forgive those who sin against them and keep me from Satan, please. He does keep us so often from the clutches of Satan. Job has his own little journey. But besides, like a lot of, most of the time, he really does keep us from the clutches of Satan and from, from torment and those kinds of things. But we are not protected like that when we have unforgiveness and bitterness in our lives. And if you don't, if you want another text to help illustrate that, it's the one we read secondly, Ephesians chapter four. I'll read it to you, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So what happens? It starts with a little offense. Actually, sometimes it starts with a giant offense. But as soon as I am offended, I completely have a choice what I do with that offense. I could take that offense and it can manifest it, itself into hatred towards a person. It can manifest itself into all kinds of anger. And we've been given a time frame don't let the sun go down on that. That means I need to deal swiftly with offenses that happen to me. Now, some of you have been offended egregiously. And some of you tonight, you've had sexual abuse. You've had terrible parents. You've had coworkers that sabotaged you. The list goes, I mean, like really serious things have happened to some of you, but there's no clause in here. And I am not minimizing what has happened to you. I actually think it's really good that Jennifer's here tonight because she's also a counselor. This is great. You'll be staying till midnight. It'll be perfect. Um, but there's not, a, there's not a clause for I get to be really mad and hate someone for an extended period of time, depending on the severity of the, the injury that's been afflicted on me. No, as a Christian, if that's what you are, I can be mad, I can be offended, I can be hurt, I can want justice, I can have all those things. But I need quick resolution so that this does not turn into a seed of bitterness. Because that seed of bitterness will germinate and it will root and I promise you, it will corrupt your whole entire existence. And it's a, it's a giant warning sign that the Lord is, has let you be opened up to satanic attack, demonic influence, all kinds of other things. You are no longer kept from the evil one so often in these moments. Because forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who sin against us. Think about Jesus on the cross. Because 
our forgiveness of others is a direct gospel picture. If I have been forgiven for all of my sins, who am I to not forgive other people? If Jesus on the cross looked down and said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. If he himself could do that in the most violated of moments, the perfect son of God, taking on sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. The perfect son of God, if he took all of our sins on him and said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, who am I to have the right to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness towards others? So, I think you have to ask the question, so, you know, why is, this, why is this idea, why could God have worked it out in some other way? I think part of the reason he didn't work it out, that when we let bitterness go, he also stops our progress. He doesn't forgive other sins, those little sins. We break fellowship, not relationship. We break fellowship with him. We stay stuck. There's all kinds of stuff that happens to us. I think it's because, one, he's reminding us, you need forgiveness as much as everybody else. Seek my forgiveness and seek their forgiveness. Forgive them. I think... There's some great passages if you're taking notes. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 21, that's a great passage on the ministry of reconciliation and how Christ was this picture of reconciliation and so we should be also. The book of Philemon is a one-page read if you're looking for a great little resource on the idea of forgiveness. Um, this slave runs away and finds Paul and becomes a Christian and becomes a great help to Paul, but Paul knows the slave's master and Paul writes to the the slave's master, and here's what he says. This is crucial. Paul says, I could command you to forgive him, but I won't. I will appeal to you as my brother in Christ out of love to receive Onesimus back to you. Do you see what Paul was saying in the book of Philemon? He said, I could command you to forgive him. Here's a, here's a tricky idea probably nobody told you when you were like, I want to give my life to Christ. Probably nobody sat you down and said, you know, forgiveness is mandatory, right? Like you got to let everything go. Like probably nobody sat you down and said that. If so, you probably would have been like, even so-and-so, and they'd be like, oh yeah, totally so-and-so. Like nobody told you that. But forgiveness actually is mandatory as a Christian. Now remember, it's mandatory, mandated from a good God. He's only good. And a loving God who's only loving. And a just God who's only just. Like he's all those things all the time together. He is fully just. And he knows who needs, who, who needs some recompense. He, he knows who needs to get it. But he also knows you have no right to hang on to it. Let me just tell you what forgiveness does. Forgiveness releases me as the judge and jury over a person. Kevin on the front row here, if Kevin had offended me really badly and I was really mad at Kevin, Kevin's a nice guy. Um, if Kevin had really, really offended me and I was really mad at him and it turned into a root of bitterness and maybe I was like, man, I hope Kevin's job goes bad. I hope Kevin gets fired. I hope Kevin is a miserable single man forever. Like if I was like, I mean, really like we've, you've had those thoughts about people. Look, 
I'm just letting you into my, my mind a little bit. But like if I was like, like, like if I was like, I'm a, yeah, let me think about Kevin. What have I just done? I've just said I could do a better job of ruling his life sovereignly than God himself. I have just committed blasphemy. When I enter into unforgiveness and get into bitterness, I no longer believe that God is capable of fixing a situation, and he clearly doesn't know what he's doing because so-and-so is walking around just fine. And so I just moved God off of his throne and said, why don't you scoot over and let me take over for a minute and let me, let me take that person. See, forgiveness releases me as judge, jury, and executioner. Forgiveness puts me back under the throne, trusting in the God who I have claimed in front of many, many people that I trust to be God. Forgiveness in that case starts to build compassion for me towards whoever my offender is. Forgiveness puts me in the rightful place as worshiper of the great and loving judge. Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 12, but he gets it from Deuteronomy 32, 35 through 36, where God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God knows how to enact vengeance in ways you and I could never dream. Let him have the heavy hand and let me have the light heart. Let me tell you what unforgiveness does. Unforgiveness is an unnatural reaction that feels most natural. It places me as the judge and the jury. It's ultimately blasphemy. It makes me God. I can't say that any more clearly. And this opens the door for a lot of satanic and demonic influences. It even opens the door for like the pseudo forgiveness, self, self-help stuff that's out there. And so maybe I think, well, I don't have to really have to forgive them. I just don't have to do any, I don't have to have anything to do with them. I can move on. Here I am. Look, I'm, a, I'm, I'm healthy. That person did this to me, but I don't need them. I've moved on. I'm strong. I'm a survivor. Let me read you a, a really strange passage out of, uh, out of Luke chapter I believe it's in Luke chapter 11. Uh, go ahead and turn there. In fact, I want you to see this so you don't think I'm making it up. Look at Luke chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. A lot of times when I become the person who says, ah, oh, you know what? I don't, need, I, I don't need to forgive them. I'm bigger than them. I'm above them. I've moved on. We feel like I have had forgiveness. I've had resolution. Really what you've had is a hardened heart. And you may have pushed away some bitter feelings, but the root is still growing and it is strong. It reminds me of this story, Luke 11, 24 through 26. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. You can't fix this on your own. You need supernatural help to let somebody go, to let God be God 
and you trust that he can resolve this. So let me just show you real quick on the screen a couple of practical forgiveness tips, and then I'm going to tell you a story, and then we're going to have a little response time. If you want to screenshot this one with your phone, you probably could. It's got a lot of great verses beside it. But practical forgiveness tips, I think, do you see that, Lewis? Should be a slide with a bunch of verses. Maybe. Nope. Okay. Well, I can text it to you. That's fine. I can send it out in the group meeting. Um, practical forgiveness tips. One, how quickly. Ephesians 4 says to not let the sun go down on your anger. How often? Matthew chapter 18. Peter said, Lord, how often should I forgive somebody? Somebody commits the same offense over and over and over again. Jesus, Peter said seven times, and Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And Peter was like, ah, I should ask somebody else. Uh, and so, like, a lot. Like, we have constant forgiveness. It's running from us. Think about the cross. What if the cross had a limited number of passes, right? Like, if Jesus was like, oh, you hit your quota for the day, you're going to hell. Like, no, like we would, that would be terrible, right? Like, we have an unlimited number of opportunities to come back and say, I'm so sorry. And that cross covers all of them. So, we extend forgiveness like the Lord extended forgiveness to us. We go on. And uh, so, how quickly very quickly, how often, as often as someone offends, to what extent? Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. The extent is this. The extent is 100% fully. Paul in Romans 12 says, never return evil for evil. Paul says the same thing Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, to bless the folks when they come against you, to do good to those who are harming you. And he says, and Paul, I love Paul because Paul's like, get a little dig in there. He's like, and in doing so, you'll be heaping hot coals on their head. And you're like, that's what I've been looking for anyway. Thank you, Paul. Like, I would like to heap a few hot coals on so-and-so's head. Like, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, when, you when you're offended, kill them with kindness is what Paul's saying. And believe it or not, even though it's a really old expression, it still holds true. And then you got to ask the question, can justice still be served? My favorite Christian singer, who some of you have heard me say this before, Rich Mullins, I went to his concert back in the day right before he, um, right before he went to be with the Lord. And, uh, and he gave this line in his concert. He was like playing the keyboard. He played like 50 different instruments, but he was playing the keyboard. I don't think he played it like this, but he was playing the keyboard. And uh, as he was playing it, he said, you know, I think about that verse sometimes in Romans 12, because Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32 in Romans 12. And he says, vengeance is mine, so saith the Lord. And then he said, I just want to be about the Lord's work. And so I think sometimes we're like, yeah, let's, let's I kind of want to do that too. And Paul says, you can be about the Lord's work. And the way you be about the Lord's work is you love those who don't love you. And when you do it, it's just going to tick them off. And we kind of want that a little bit. But also the Lord will judge. He will judge every wrong and every hurt. And for all who have been hurt and wronged, he will wipe away every tear of those that are his. Now let me make this real for you. I was 25, 20, 27 years old. 
27 years old. And we had this little youth group that started with seven kids and then there were 100 kids in a couple of years and we baptized like 30 kids. And uh, some of, you may know some of them. Miles Fidel was one of them. Samer Mossad was one of them. Like some of these guys, like it was like a really cool youth group. Those are two guys that are pastors now. But anyway, there's like a, it was a, an amazing little youth group where God was doing all this work. It was a small little portable church that like set up like ours. In fact, I had P- PTSD when I came on staff here. I was like, oh no, I'm going back. Um, but like we had this set up church and we met on Sunday nights, kind of like our youth group does now. I mean, we saw God do miracle after miracle. It was incredible. I've done some of those kids' weddings since then. Like, we're still connected, some of them. It's just, it was a really sweet time. And uh, I met with the pastor one day. It was only three of us on staff and a a secretary, like, and you you could say secretary then. Anyway, um, but I met with, I met with the three, like me and the lead pastor, we met. We had this like real friendly conversation. Thomas, what do you want to do one day? And I said, you know, I think I probably want to be a teaching pastor at some point. And he was like, that's great. That's great. Real friendly, like lunch conversation, just like pep talk. And, uh, and two weeks later, he said, hey, Thomas, can you come in my office? And I said, yeah. And him and the other pastor, the associate pastor, were sitting in there. And they said, you have two weeks and then you're done here. And I cried. I mean, my chin, like ugly cry, like my chin started trembling and I just started pouring tears. And I said, but I love these kids. Like, why, why am I leaving? What happened? And they said, we just, we just think it's time for you to go be a teaching pastor somewhere. And I'm telling you, it felt like someone had, had taken my children. And it was just the, I mean, it was like the worst thing that could happen. And then people start asking you, so are you, were you unfaithful to your wife? Did like you steal something? Did, because no reason was giving. It was ugly. The Sunday they, I was announced to leave, I had to write a script that was not true. He wanted me to write a script that wasn't true and read it to the church that I had agreed to go and I had some other thing. I'm telling you, you can't make this stuff up. And I got up and I couldn't, I didn't write it and I couldn't, I couldn't even finish reading it without just breaking down in front of the whole church. A guy got up in the church and called the senior pastor a liar in the middle of the whole thing. The church split in half. My dad came to show support that day and it was so stressful. He got like this incredible migraine and like could hardly get home. I mean, it was like the, it was, it was terrible. And I hated that man. I wanted him to get hit by a car. I wanted him to, I wanted some, I I hated that man. And I met with another pastor in town And he tried to explain it away and tell me I was going to be okay. And and I thought, I'll never be okay. And I I thought I tried to forgive him. I invited him to lunch one day. and, uh, And I said, hey, you know, we didn't part in the best of ways. And I was like, that is not true. We part in the worst of ways. Um, but I like invited him to lunch at a, at a, at a Longhorn one day and, uh, and I paid for it and I didn't even have a job. Um, and, uh, I invited him to lunch and I was like, Hey, um, you know, I, here's the deal. Like I, I, I really feel like we left in bad ways and I don't want us to have any, any, you know, bad will towards each other. And he thanked me for telling him I was wrong. And we ended lunch. Then I wanted to kill him. I didn't want like something to happen to him. I wanted to happen to him. 
Well, time goes on, and they say time heals all wounds. It doesn't, not those wounds. And I came on staff at this church, Johnson Ferry Baptist. This is the church actually that planted Christ's covenant. It's how, it's how we know each other. I mean, we've been a long time, right? Yeah, uh, Jennifer and I both went to Johnson Ferry, and, uh, and some of you came from there. And I worked there for a few years, and, uh, and we needed a men's minister. And our pastor, Bryant Wright, he's going to preach here in a couple of months on a Sunday. He's going to be here for our birthday party, our, our Christ Covenant September birthday party. Bryant's a great guy. Bryant said, uh, he's, he said, Thomas, we really need a men's minister. And we're thinking about hiring, and he said that guy's name. And I... I mean, it's a big church and a really big staff, and I was just kind of a low man on the totem pole, and I don't know where it came from, but I said, if you hire him, I'll leave. And he kind of took a step back, and he said, well, Thomas, I, I won't hire him then. And then he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, but you've got bitterness in your heart, and you've got to get that out. And I was like, you don't know what he did to me. He said, doesn't matter what he did to you. He said, that's going to eat you alive. And I was like, I'm over it. He was like, no, you're not. <laughs> he came back and said, Thomas, we really want to hire him. I got my fly fishing gear and I drove over to the Chattahoochee River because that Johnson Ferry Baptist is right next to Riverside Drive and the Chattahoochee there. And it was winter and, uh, and you, can, you can trout fish on the hooch in the winter and usually the bacteria won't eat through your clothing and kill you. Uh, and so like I went in and I, I remember I just stood in the middle of the river. You, most of you have probably been there right over by Cumberland, that part of the river. I went over there and I was standing out in the middle of the river and I don't remember anything about fishing. I don't even know if I cast my fly rod or not. I just stood there for hours. And it started with, God, I forgive him. And then it was, no, I don't. And then it turned into, God, let me tell you what he did to me. Let me tell you what he did to Heather. Let me tell you what happened after that. And I listed this, all of his offenses. And I said, but I forgive him because you forgive me. And then I said, no, I can't. And then I said, God, I need you to give me the strength to forgive him. And this went on and on and on. But I'll never forget when I got back in the car, it was like Semisonic started playing closing time in the background. When I got back in the car, I thought, I feel 30 pounds lighter. Like, me and the Lord, we left that in the river. And this was a multi-year battle to get here. And when I got into the car, I called Bryant and I told him it was fine to hire him. And he said, we're going to make him apologize to you. And I said, that's fine. You don't have to. He wrote a letter of apology to me that um, like, was basically forced for him to have the job. He wrote this letter and he did. Um, I kept it for about 30 seconds and then threw it away. And I would for a little bit have to say, no, I still forgive him. I choose to forgive him by the power of God in me. I forgive him. Like, Lord, help me. Give me the strength because you forgive me. And I want the Lord's prayer to be true. I want, I want to be forgiven as much as I forgive others. And we worked together for like four years. And it was totally fine. I never trusted him, though. And I do want to say that. Trust is not the same as forgiveness. Trust is earned. Forgiveness is demanded. We got along great. It was fine. 
but I wouldn't be here with you tonight. I'm just convinced of it. I wouldn't be here with you tonight if I hadn't gone through that then. And so as we wrap up tonight, is there anybody that you're holding on to, that you've become judge, jury, and executioner over? It's a great night to start the process of you stepping off of God's throne, putting God on his throne. You be the worshiper. Let him be the judge and jury. And even if you're like, there's no way that's possible, well, I would think you're probably right, not in your own strength, but by his it is. And lastly, are you that guy to anybody? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you were at the altar presenting your gift and there remember that your brother has something against you, that's like if you're at church and you're worshiping and you got your Bible and it's got your name on it and all the stuff and you're like, I am, I am at church and I'm having a great time and the Lord convicts you that you have offended someone. Jesus said to leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then you can worship. So we'd be remiss to not give the flip side. This whole process would have been so much easier if he had come to me and said, man, I'm really sorry for all that. Some of you might need to be that person. We know this is super heavy. This is not a sitcom. This doesn't get resolved in 40 minutes. There's a lot of conversation that needs to happen after this. So when we're done tonight, I am going to ask Jennifer if she'll hang around for just a little bit. She might, you might want to just get chat with her for a second. You don't have to stay forever. But Jennifer's a great resource. We also have a bunch of folks on our prayer team. And Cass, where are you guys going to be? They're going to be right over here by these double doors, and they are ready to pray with you. You don't even have to tell them the whole story, but if you're like, I relate with what happened tonight, I just need somebody to pray over me, start the conversation and let someone else in and let them pray for you. So let me close this out in prayer. Will's going to lead us in one more song, and then some of us have some work to do getting things right with the Lord. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for all that you have done for us. Lord, I thank you that you extend grace upon grace and you forgive our whole lives, Lord, but you do, for fellowship's sake with you, require that we let other people go and give them to you. And Lord, it's so easy to read, it's so easy to talk about, but it's really hard to do. For some of us, Lord, it's the hardest thing we'll ever do. Lord, may tonight start the night of healing for people who have been holding on for a long time, Lord. And for those in the room who have offended, may they have the guts as they're convicted by you to go and seek reconciliation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen.